as Mark said, we'll be reading Matthew 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherefore shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and be trodden under foot of man. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. For it, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am, I am not come to destroy, but to f- fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whoever, whoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and teach, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the, heaven of king, into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it has been said of them of old, Thou shalt not kill, but whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the, of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if, y'all, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled with thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thy adversary quickly, whilst thou in the way with him. Least at, least at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out hence, till thou hast paid thy uttermost farthing. Ye have, ha- ye have heard that it had been said of them, by them of old, of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever look on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in, in his heart. Then if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is, is profitable for thee that one member of thy, one of thy members shall perish, and not thy whole body shall be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, 
cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever put away shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whoever shall marry her that is divorced commit adultery. Again, ye have heard that it has been, been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt per- perform unto the Lord thy oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by the heaven, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more, whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if you will, and if any man will sue thee at the law, take, and taketh away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whoever so sh- shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asked thee, and from him that would, would borrow from thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, Love, thy, love your enemy, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despite, which despisefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of, the, of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, sendeth, and he sendeth the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you what do you more than, than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. You may be seated. Good morning. Before we begin looking at the word, I'd just like to ask if you would to to pray with me. Um, we'll begin this by song. If you know the song, feel free to sing, and if if not, you can just uh, bow your your head and and pray to the Lord that uh, our time this morning with the word open before us would be what he wants it to be. So let's, let's bow. Change my heart, O oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O oh God. May I be like you. Change my heart, O oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O oh God. May I be like you. You are the power. 
This is what I pray. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. If you didn't care for the previous two weeks of introduction coming from the mouth of the king, you may have a difficult time hearing what he has to say this week. The last two beatitudes that we have before us are in no way light, nor are they comfortable. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, familiar passage, verse 16 and 17, says that the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. I want you to notice there's not a fifth category there listed in the scripture. And yet, how often do people come in on a Sunday morning looking for the message That's going to make them feel good. Today's text is profitable for instruction in righteousness. Among other things. But it is definitely profitable for instruction in righteousness. In fact, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is profitable for instruction in righteousness. So, if you're up to some instruction... In righteousness this morning, and I pray that you are, I encourage you to listen to the Holy Spirit as we study the word this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And now, as he concludes the introduction... We hear these words in Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Some of your translations say children. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. Jesus here is extending his blessing, his favor, his approval to a group of peacemakers. Who are these peacemakers? What is it to be a peacemaker? To whom do you look for instruction in being a peacemaker? What's the result or the reward of being a peacemaker? And, and, oh, by the way, what does the world think about a peacemaker as defined by Jesus Christ? Well, I'd like to provide a little bit of background on the peacemaker. Before you start considering the implications of being a peacemaker yourself... I'd like to show you what the scriptures have to say about that. First of all, I'd like to point you to this God of peace. The Bible says in Philippians 4 verse 9, as Paul is writing his letter, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace 
will be with you. Near the end of the letter to the Romans, Romans 15, 33, Paul concludes with, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Oftentimes in the beginning of his letters, he's using grace and peace to you. Church, I would want you to know that we serve a God of peace. I would also want to direct your attention to the Son, Jesus, who is our Prince of Peace. In fact, Isaiah, I love the passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called, listen to these names, Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And here it is. Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says in fact that Jesus, He Himself is our peace. Amen to that. He's our peace. I pray that some of you in here have experienced that peace in your life. Having Jesus in your life. Well, as good as it is to see God as a God of peace and to see Jesus as the Prince of Peace, we also have a spirit of peace residing within us. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. So we have the character of God that's displayed in God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the character called for in the seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers. A peacemaker is one who exhibits the peace of God in his life. How do you obtain this peace of God? Good question. The Bible says in Romans 5 verse 1. Having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Here it is. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we have and can obtain peace with God. Only through Jesus Christ. So how does this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, how does it get manifested? It gets manifested through the promised Holy Spirit. Who upon his arrival in Acts chapter 2, he brought power. Remember that? That power not to build oneself up but power to witness to Jesus. This peace with God, which comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, oh, by the way, we pause right there for just a moment. This peace that comes through Jesus Christ. I'd like to be even more specific if I could. If you turn in your Bibles to Colossians, this gets a little bit more specific. Peace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get a little bit more detail. Look at verse 19 and 20 of chapter 1, Colossians. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Here it is. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. So peace with God comes through our Lord Jesus Christ by way of, by means of, the cross, 
the blood of Jesus at the cross. Let's be very clear. This peace is made known through the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells within each one who believes and receives, as John writes, John 1, verse 12. His power is manifested through vessels submitted to His righteousness. See, there's some today that have, have problem submitting to His righteousness. That's what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 10. There, there are a group of folks who were trying to establish their own righteousness. And they were not willing to submit to God's righteousness. You know, I'm reminded of Acts chapter 6 and, and the kind of men called to take care of the widow's distribution. Remember that? They were supposed to be men of good reputation and men filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, in that Acts 6 text, the multitude making up the new community of believers, they were to seek out the kind of men filled with the Holy Spirit. It was to be evident which men were filled with the Holy Spirit. One of many attributes flowing out of the Holy Spirit is peace, church. I'm spending time on this up front because I desire for you to see the roots, the, the, the very foundation of the one called a peacemaker. This kind of peace is not found in the world, church. In fact, just hours before the cross, Jesus speaks these words to his disciples in, in John chapter 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You see, Jesus in the context is speaking to his disciples. The cross is pending. Jesus' peace is unveiled through. Of all things, Jesus' peace is unveiled through the cross. Ephesians 2.13, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. But now, here's the key. In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through what? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, some of you here have yet to experience, perhaps, this kind of peace. Perhaps you have a father or a mother who has yet to experience this kind of peace that we're speaking of this morning. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's a son or a daughter who's far from the Lord. A peacemaker must himself ultimately enter through the cross of Jesus Christ, church. You cannot be a peacemaker until and unless you have the Prince of Peace in your life. 
The peacemaker carries around with him the cross of Christ. Understanding the cross to be his refuge of peace. I love the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Paul says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Here it is. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. How can the cross be the refuge for the peacemaker? Wasn't, wasn't the cross an instrument of death and brutality and torture? Wasn't the cross just simply reserved for criminals of the day? A peacemaker is in Christ and always carries about in his body the dying. I love the tense of the word. Notice it doesn't say always carrying around the death. He's carrying around the dying of the body of Jesus. So that, for what purpose? Why? Why do we remember this? That the life of Jesus may be manifested in his body, in your body. That we might remember this. Because you see, if we are in Christ, we understand Christ didn't stay on the cross. Amen? He didn't stay on the cross. He's alive. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. And that's good news. You see, the cross... According to what the Bible says, the cross is a message of foolishness to the world. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. That's what Paul says in Corinthians 1.18. The cross, church, breathes life. God took something that was an instrument of death and he brings life out of it. That's something only our God can do, church. The cross where our Lord Jesus died is the means by which you now have life and peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's be clear what this peace is that Jesus speaks of. It's not simply the absence of something, such as violence, which is all around us, war, to say that we have peace, not simply referring to the absence of, of war, the absence of violence. It is that, but peace in its entirety is not that. It's not strife in the home. I just wish there were peace. What you're saying there is, just wish there was maybe less complaining, less arguing, less contention, less strife. Perhaps at your workplace, there's an individual or two 
who stirs up the nest. And on the day when that person's not there, you may be thinking to yourself, oh, there is peace here today. Because of that individual who perhaps brings anything but peace to the equation. Even in the church, have we seen peace or viewed peace as something that simply makes everyone happy? You know, when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, be at peace among yourselves. Is he just telling them to get along? Just, Just get along. I know you might have some differences and you might have this and that going on, but just, let's just get along. Is he just calling for them to stay clear from anything that might lead to conflict? Is that what he's calling them to? For the church, for the parts of the body, to be at peace among themselves. Let's ask the question, how does that get manifested? Is it simply to pacify one another? Is this this an exercise in seeing that that everyone is content, that no one's left out, no one's made to feel bad? Is this a pursuit to see that that each part is is happy? Is the goal to avoid any and all conflict? Is that what it means to be a peacemaker? While there is no doubt a level at which we pursue some of those aforementioned items. The scriptures do call us to give preference and honor, right, to one another, to consider one another's interests ahead of our own. When we look at Christ and we look at his words, I believe it becomes very helpful for us in understanding how a peacemaker is to function. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning in verse 34, reading a few verses on forward. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. On earth. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus' words about peace sit in the context of discipleship. If you look at Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53, Jesus says these words, I came to send fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. I want you to hear these words. These are hard words coming from Jesus. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, says Jesus. So what we have in Matthew and Luke, we have the images 
a sword, and a devouring fire. That's the image Christ presents over and above the idea of what we typically hold on to is this idea of peace. Think about it. Christ coming to earth would have turned people inside out. You remember the story in Luke 5. He's calling the fishermen. Hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You've been doing this fishing thing for a while. Follow me and I'm going to show you how we catch men. And they, they, the scripture says they forsook all. They left it all. They left their father. The scripture, does, you know, it's interesting. We don't get the insight from Zebedee, do we? The father, James and John. We, we, don't, we, don't, get the, we don't get the result of them leaving. The dad, I'm sure, was relying upon his sons to help him in the business. When Christ came and Christ called people to follow him, we see in Luke chapter 9 what that means. It's not simply follow him. No, no. It's first denying self, taking up the cross, and then follow. For someone like a rich young man, Jesus has a conversation and understands the very one thing that's a snare and a snag to this man following him. And he calls him to rid himself of that one thing. One thing he lacked. It was the wealth and the riches. And isn't it interesting that that one thing that was a snare between himself and a relationship with Christ, the one thing that was the difference maker in following Christ and walking away from Christ, the Bible says he went away sad he had great riches. This man was willing to walk away with his riches and at the same time he was walking away from Christ. Christ bringing division. You know, we need to also understand that the word of God itself According to Hebrews chapter 4. Remember it says there that it's living and active. Living and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. This word is. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. This word has a, in itself a dividing work. I hope we see this. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is calling men unto himself. And you know what? This message, some of these verses that I just read, Matthew and Luke, it's not a feel-good message. I understand that. It's not one, perhaps, that we like to hear. The Prince of Peace was sent here to earth not to take away your problems and trials, Not to calm all your troubling storms. He was sent to save his people from sin. He came to call men unto himself. To receive the peace that only he gives through the cross. 
Church, this peace is only found in Jesus. So this message of Jesus dividing. It's not a popular message today. You don't hear many people preaching about Jesus dividing. That's not going to draw a great crowd. We don't appreciate that message. We don't like to hear it. We prefer the, one of those you know, Jesus and messages, a message where we can, we can keep our stuff, we can keep our gadgets, some of our old man tendencies perhaps, and just add the name of Jesus. We prefer more of a Jesus loves me message. Church, he does love you. But he also doesn't want to keep you as you are. He wants to conform you into the image of his son. To think that peace with God, this Romans 5, 1 concept. To think that peace with God maintains friendship with things of the world. First John speaks of that, doesn't it? Chapter 2. We're missing what it means then to be a peacemaker. A peacemaker doesn't try to dodge anything that might cause conflict. This is perhaps an area that we've not thought of as we think about what it means to be a peacemaker. Sometimes it may get worse before it gets better. These words are not my own, but I believe this, this gentleman says it in a way that, that I couldn't, so I'm just going to borrow. want to make, no, make you know that these are not my words. On point, though, I believe. Believers cannot avoid facing truth or avoid facing others with the truth for the sake of harmony. If someone is in error about a part of God's truth, he cannot have a right, peaceful relationship with others until the error is confronted and corrected. Jesus never evaded the issue of wrong doctrine or behavior. He treated the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, with great love and compassion, but he did not hesitate to confront her godless life. First, he confronted her with her immoral living. He says, you've been with five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And then he confronts her about her and corrects her false idea of worship. The person who is not willing to disrupt and disturb in God's name cannot be a peacemaker. Ooh, that, that's hard to hear. Because you see, at the core of it, we don't like to be disrupted or disturbed. We have these walls. And when someone comes to us with something from the word in God's name, oh, let's be clear. This is not simply someone coming to you because they don't like, there's a personal preference. No, it's something they're seeing as a result of what the word says, seeing something in your life that perhaps is lacking, perhaps is absent. And as a brother or sister, they love you enough to talk to you about it. The writer goes on. To come to terms with anything less than God's truth and righteousness is to settle for a truce which confirms sinners in their sin and may leave them even further from the kingdom. 
Those who in the name of love or kindness or compassion try to witness by appeasement and compromise of God's word will find that their witness leads away from him, not to him. God's peacemakers will not let a sleeping dog lie if it is opposed to God's truth. They will not protect the status quo if it is ungodly and unrighteous. They are not willing to make peace at any price. God's peace only comes in God's way. Being a peacemaker is essentially, this is important, being a peacemaker is essentially the result of a holy life and the call to others to embrace the gospel of holiness. So how about you? Are are you willing to negotiate peace at any price just to have peace? Have you attached being a peacemaker with living a holy life? Have you seen that your role as a peacemaker is to call others to the same gospel of holiness? A peacemaker understands what Christ accomplished at the cross to secure his peace with God. A peacemaker understands that the spirit of Christ within him produces the fruit of peace in his life. But the peacemaker needs to also see how the Lord has intended him to function within the body of Christ. How do the parts of the body in the church exhibit peacemaking? There are many churches where you can attend, you can listen to a a message, Take up an offering, sing some songs, offer up prayer, perhaps participate in the Lord's Supper. And once all that gets done, you're free to go. And in some of those situations, you may not see anyone else in the church until next Sunday. And then you come back in through the doors and you do church all over again. The size of the church does not matter here. The heart is what matters. Tending to hearts, it begins with tending to your own heart, inclining your own heart toward holy living. Here's the point. think, Think about peacemakers. A peacemaker in the church first carries around with him an understanding of what Christ did to secure his peace with God. Wonderful passage of scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just read a few of those verses. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So you see, God has reconciled the world unto himself through Jesus. You think about reconciliation, where you have two parties coming together. God began that reconciling work. Why the need, church, for reconciling here? Why? Sin. Your great distance from God, that separation from God, sin. And God 
reconciled you unto himself through the mediator, the man, First, first Timothy says, for the man Jesus Christ. Through the cross, through his blood. God initiated that reconciling work through the cross. Secondly, a peacemaker in the church. Because of what God did to secure your peace with God. This peacemaker in the church is going to pursue godly living. Going to pursue truth. Going to pursue righteousness, faith, love. And as Romans 13, 14 says, this peacemaker in Christ's church is going to make no provisions for the flesh. A peacemaker in the church desires to pursue this godly living, not on his own, but with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. We do this together. We see also a peacemaker in the church He then takes the truth of Jesus with him day to day. He shines the light of Christ wherever he goes. He endeavors that everyone else, everyone else in the body, but even those who aren't in the body yet, his life is an invitation, a call, if you will, much like what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching primarily to whom? To the disciples, but it's an invitation for all to come. To participate in this life. The call for everyone else to live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. This peacemaker in Christ is not afraid to lovingly confront with the word. When he sees parts of the body pursuing ungodliness and worldly lust. That's Titus chapter 2 verse 12. You see, God has, according to the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. He's committed that ministry to us to be peacemakers. Verse 20 of chapter 5 in Corinthians. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what we call people to. Just a a note, a note to, to recipients of a peacemaker's word. If you are in Christ and get confronted with the word, I want you to be thinking about and considering, how are you going to handle it? How do you handle that? When someone confronts you with the word. Note to the peacemakers as well. Do not use your position in Christ to bludgeon another brother and sister. This is not license to go around pounding everyone. We are to practice and exercise the biblical principle... Of truthing in love, Ephesians 4.15. And we do this with meekness and fear of the Lord. 1 Peter 3.15. You see, the character God desires to see displayed in you is different from that of the world. It's different. That's why the Bible calls you a new man. 
new, as in never before. And in that same context of a new man, Paul writes these words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. You see, the church is called to let the peace of Christ rule in her heart. So when that's not happening, when that's not evident, the parts of the body are called to exhort one another in the right spirit. To be the peacemaker the Lord's called them to be. To not settle for anything less than what Christ has put forth in his word. To stop accepting mediocrity in Christ. To stop sweeping issues under the rug. To stop turning your head to the truth that needs to be addressed in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What a wonderful result here in the text of being a peacemaker. They shall be called sons of God. Not simply children. Although children is a wonderful thing, it is a wonderful privilege to be called a child of God. But here in the text, I believe Jesus is not simply referencing a position. But the peacemaker, as one writer says, reflects his father's wonderful peacemaking character. Being a son, we reflect the character of our father in heaven. That's what Jesus is intending for us to be. That's what he's called us to be as a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called sons of God. You know, I was looking in the Bible at some other passages that referenced this idea of sons of God. The other characteristics attached to that. In Romans 8, 14, the text says there, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Sons of God are ones who are led by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 5, a little bit later on in Matthew 5, we're going to see these words in 44 and 45. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's characteristic when we pray for... See, that's not common. The reward, the result is that you will be sons of the Father in heaven. Revelation 22, 7 says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. The overcomer. And what about Hebrews 12, 7? If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Amen for that. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I want you to look at this last beatitude. These last three verses here. 10, 11, 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, church, many of these beatitudes sound a bit strange. Odd. Because we tend to align the beatitude next to what the world typically does or says. When that's our gauge, when that's our measuring stick, these words of Jesus are going to be odd. They're going to sound strange. Because you see, the world doesn't care to be poor in spirit, nor does it desire to mourn over their sin. It doesn't elevate meekness. The world is hungering and thirsting for many things, but not righteousness. The world tends not to be merciful, nor does it pursue purity of heart. Peacemaking is largely absent from those in the world. Peacemaking as described by Jesus, that is. But then you get to the final beatitude and you hear about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. I need to ask the question again. Whose blessing and approval are you seeking? Does the king's approval mean something to you? Then listen to what he says here. This beatitude is a bit different than the others in that it describes something done to you. Did you see that? Someone is doing something to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Based on the text, why do these people receive persecution? It's important that we see this. For righteousness sake. Okay? When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the ramification of such a life It's persecution at some level, some degree. The world doesn't put up with righteousness for very long. I mean, just look at the life of Jesus. Great example. You begin to see that his righteous living pricked the consciences of those during his day. We read verses 10, 11, and 12, and I believe oftentimes get focused upon the word persecution The key word, I believe, here, as it is in all of the Sermon on the Mount, the key word is righteousness. We tend to think of all the martyrs through history. I was doing some reading this past week in Fox's Book of the Martyrs. Some of you maybe have a copy of that book, and I've read through that. Amazing to take some time this week to just read the stories of those people who were martyred for their faith. We associate, perhaps, persecution with death only. No. And while it is true that righteous living can lead to death, I would want you to see that death is not the only thing alluded to here in this verse. In verse 11, notice he goes to a second person, blessed are you. 
He speaks of those who revile and persecute you. The idea of persecuting someone here has in mind of chasing after. Going after someone and and for the purpose of evil. Doing damage to that person in some way, shape or form. Pursuing them. This is a group of people who perhaps speak directly to you about something that you've said for righteousness sake. These people aren't persecuting you because you just robbed the bank and you're running away and they're trying to come after you. That's not what we're talking about. They're pursuing you because you're doing something, you're saying something that is at odds with what they desire, what they see going on all around them. Let's be clear as we talk about the previous Beatitudes. Perhaps they're pursuing you because they themselves find that they are not at peace with Christ. And so see, when you're at peace with Christ, you have that peace of God through Jesus Christ. You are going to walk in righteousness, in the way of righteousness. And when you walk in that way of righteousness, let's be very clear. There are a lot of people in the world, the world as a general whole, will not tolerate that. They will speak up, they will bite, they will fuss, perhaps even kill the one who desires to walk in the way of righteousness. But you know, there's also another kind of group that's going to say all kinds of evil against you falsely. For Jesus' sake. You know, you see that in verse 11? That's interesting. They say all kinds of evil against you falsely for, for my sake, Jesus says. For my sake. For, for his sake and for righteousness. I see those as parallels. Righteousness' sake, for my sake. Jesus' sake, righteousness' sake. Have you ever had someone... Speak against you behind your back. You know, I find it interesting how comfortable people are saying evil things about you falsely while not in your presence. You know, and I was I was reminded of First Samuel chapter eight. It came to pass when Samuel was old. that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. You know, I read this passage this week and and just... I I, I paused as I was learning about Samuel... In these first few verses. Look at verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. And said to him, look, you're old. Now, by the way, someone comes to you and says you're old. We don't, we don't tend to take that very well oftentimes. But that's what they said. They come to the first thing out of their mouth. Look, you're old. Second, your sons do not walk in your ways. 
The first one might be funny. The second one is not. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. We could say a lot of things about Samuel. We could say a lot of things about his parenting or lack thereof. One thing I see here, When the text says, the thing displeased Samuel when they said. Notice he wasn't displeased when they pointed out that he was old or that his sons didn't walk in his ways. But he was displeased when he found out that his people desired a king like all the other nations. What did Samuel do? He prayed to the Lord. Listen to this. The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Oh, this is so important. For they have not rejected you, Samuel. But they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The essence of the passage, the thing I'd like to bring to light here, is that the people were rejecting God as their king. Samuel... The prophet, the spokesperson, God's people, he's the one who received the brunt of it. But it was God they were truly rejecting. You can probably think of times when you too have taken the brunt of persecution, revilings, wickedness. You may not be the one causing the problem, but you are the one who hears the complaints. As an agent of peace, the kind of peace called for by Christ, persecution of some form, some degree, is bound to come. And the test will come just as it came to Samuel. Here's the test. Are you going to take it personally when people desire someone else beside the king of kings? Are you going to take it personally when you get insulted? Just this past week, I heard through the grapevine that something bad happened on Thursday night at a place where I usually referee. Praise the Lord, I wasn't there, but I heard about it. The long and short of it was that there was a referee and another player. The player didn't like the fact the referee teched him. I think he got two, is what I understand. The player came a little close. The referee pushed him back to get him out of his space. And the player came back and I was talking to another gentleman about this, another referee, and we were just having a little talk. And again, I, I wasn't there, I didn't see it, I just was heard through the grapevine, that was kind of what happened. And it got me thinking about this very text. I don't know where these guys are with the Lord. But I bring it up because, and some of you may be thinking, well, they're not, they're not in Christ. That's, you know, there are people who are in Christ who respond the very same way, church, who get angry, 
who don't like people doing something to them, who don't like the fact that, that somebody is in my space, who don't like the fact that they're disrespecting me. You ever heard that? As a believer in Jesus Christ, do we not know what the word says? When Christ was reviled, what did he do? He reviled not. When he suffered, what did he do? He didn't threaten back, but he committed himself to the one who judges righteously, to his father. That's how we walk. That's the way of righteousness. Not winning an argument. Not winning an argument. Some of us like to win arguments in here. That's not the life he's called us to. Winning an argument. Let's take the instruction from Samuel and take it to the Lord in prayer. How's that? I believe that's good instruction. When something comes our way and we don't quite get it, we don't quite understand, we're upset as to why these people would do such a thing. And in Samuel's context, these were the people of God. These were God's people desiring someone else other than God to lead them. And Samuel is broken over this. He takes it to God in prayer. When you desire to pursue peace with all men, when you desire to live peaceable lives in Christ, to pursue righteousness, faith, love, purity, when godliness meets up with ungodliness, the result oftentimes is persecution. One writer said that the Christian lives in a sinful world. Therefore, if he exhibits a genuine, transparent righteousness, he will be rejected by many. Genuine righteousness condemns people by implication. Small wonder that people often lash out in retaliation. Do you see what the text says, though? It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reward here is one to take note of. It's the same reward, same result as the one who was poor in spirit. Did you see that? The first beatitude, that's the reward, the result. The last beatitude, same result, reward. It's almost as though it's bookend, like like it's just wanting, he's just wanting us to let us know the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven encompasses all of what we're talking about. As a child of the king, the desire of my heart is to please Christ, to say yes to the rule and reign of Christ in my life as a citizen of heaven. I am about holding on to the things that matter in heaven, not things here. We're going to talk about that in Matthew chapter 6, where we store up our treasure. We are to be eagerly waiting a savior. We are to be longing for a city looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing, living like a sojourner, living like a pilgrim on a journey to the celestial city. So what do you do when persecution comes? How do you respond to it? What does Jesus say? I love this. Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. The idea of exceedingly glad is to skip and to jump. Isn't that odd? In the context. When you get persecuted, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Hmm. That's about as hard as 
the James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. We, we sometimes do one of these when we read that verse. But here, same idea, same concept. What is our response? What's Jesus say our response ought to be to those who persecute us? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why should the Christ follower rejoice and be exceedingly glad about this? What motivation could there possibly be to respond with rejoicing? Jesus gives one reason. One. Perhaps we need to underline this. Here it is. For great is your reward in heaven. That's the reason. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. Now, now here's, here's the difficulty with this final beatitude. We tend to want immediate results, don't we? We want something now. We want to see it come to fruition right now. We want God to make things right. We want him to do it right now. Look at what's going on, God. Come on. Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see the enemies coming in? Does this remind you of the Psalms? Oh, God, where are you? The enemy's pressing. God, where are you? How long, oh, God? How long are you going to let these wicked folks do these things? Don't you see what they're doing, God? The psalmist shared their heart. They were not shy about it. And yet we read, even in the midst of wickedness, evil, and enemies, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Church, are you willing to endure the persecutions now for Jesus' sake in exchange for a heavenly reward? Does a heavenly reward motivate you at all to respond differently to those who revile and speak evil against you? Look at the end of verse 12. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love this part. Praise the Lord for such a statement. In fact, today I encourage you to read Hebrews 11. And just for now, let's just read a portion of it in Hebrews chapter 11. This is wonderful. And what more shall I say? Verse 32. For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets... You know what I find interesting is that much of the Old Testament speaks about David. And David is, is a big character, big person in the Old Testament. And yet, you know, David's just put in here as kind of one of the group. But look at this. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the enemies of the aliens... Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tor tortured. Now, now, we're turning a corner right here. Because what I just read, there were some really good things here that happened to these folks. Now, he's given us the other side of the coin. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. Listen to this. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Were tempted were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. 
Do you live here with the realization of this great cloud of witnesses who have gone before you, church? The prophets spoken of right here in the text, they too were persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's great to know that you're not alone in the kind of life called for here by the king. People through the ages have have been given. They've given their lives to the cause of Christ. And the result has oftentimes been persecution. In some cases, persecution leading to death. I'd like to read just a few of those stories that I referred to earlier. A gentleman by the name of James Guthrie who lived in the period of 1612 through 1661. These three that I'm going to share are all in the relatively same time period, 1600s. They all happen to be Scottish around the period in time of the Scottish Covenanters. James Guthrie was a Scottish pastor. Age 49, he was hanged. Before he was killed, he said these words. I take God to record upon my soul. I would not exchange this scaffold with the palace and mitre of the greatest prelate in Britain. Blessed be God who has shown mercy to to me, such a wretch, and has revealed his son in me. Jesus Christ is my life and my light, my righteousness, my strength, and my salvation, all my desire. Him, oh him, I do with all my strength of my soul commend to you. Bless him, oh my soul, from henceforth even forever. Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. What about Isabel Allison and Marion Harvey, who in 1681, these were two Scottish women who were caught. They were simply caught at one of the open air preaching venues. On January 26, 1681, Isabel and Marion were led with five other female criminals to the grass market, which was Edinburgh's outdoor gallows. Isabel testified, so I lay down my life for owning and adhering to Jesus Christ. He being a free king in his own house, for which I blessed the Lord that ever he called me. And Marion wrote before her hanging, she said, I die not as a fool or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. No, it is for adhering to Jesus Christ and owning him to be head of his church. And together on the platform, they sang Psalm 84 until they had no more breath to sing. Donald Cargill, Scottish pastor. When Cargill mounted the scaffold on July 27th of 1681, he said, the Lord knows I go up this ladder with less fear and anxiety than I ever entered the pulpit to preach. Farewell, all relations and friends in Christ. Farewell, all earthly enjoyments, wanderings and sufferings. Welcome, joy unspeakable and full of glory. You see, church, there are many throughout the course of history, having been persecuted for Christ's sake, for righteousness' sake, who have died. They've spent their lives for Jesus. And you know, your life today, perhaps it may not lead to a climb up the steps to a scaffolding to await an execution of some kind. 
But the reality of persecution at some level, to some degree, is prevalent in this world that you live in. The days are evil, Ephesians 5.16 says. We live presently in an evil age, Galatians 1 verse 4. The prince of the power of the air runs a thriving big business in the world around us. Ephesians chapter 2, 2 and 3. You see, when the light of Christ shines in a world shrouded in darkness, the darkness will not comprehend or understand it, John 1 verse 5. And as agents of peace, as those who stand up for righteousness, the light is a joy to walk in. But those dwelling in darkness, John 3 says this, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. This hate that gets expressed by those walking in darkness, this ought not come as a surprise to the one who abides in Christ. John 15, 18 through 21, Jesus says, If the world hates you, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world, the world tends to do that. It put, puts arm around you. The world's going to be all right with you. Yet because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. A servant is not greater than his master. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer what? Persecution. But I want to remind you, as you walk with Christ, as you live as an agent of peace in a world absent of true peace, as you see the world around you going a different direction, mocking you perhaps, reviling you, speaking against you falsely, remember the words of Jesus here in the text. He provides for you the right response as a son of God the Father. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So, whether peace like a river attendeth your way, or sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever your lot, will you declare, Thou hast taught me to say, It is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, I pray that would be our response, that whatever our lot, we would be reminded of what you have taught us, that it can be well with our soul because we have the peace that we've talked about with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by way of the cross, by means of his blood, 
thank you for the privilege to be called a child. And not just a child, but as we see today, a son. That we may reflect the very character of you, Father. I pray, Father, that you would, as you see fit, correct in us. Rebuke us by your word, Father. Correct us, show us the path of righteousness. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit we would walk in that path of righteousness. That it would be a joy and a delight to walk in the path of righteousness. Even though the world around us is going to persecute us. They're going to say things we don't like. I pray, Father, that with the peace of Christ in us, you would give us words to speak. Your word does tell us that in the midst of trial, that you will give us a mouth and a wisdom. Father, we need that. Because when we use our own mouth, in our own manner, in our own way, it's going to get us into trouble. And most importantly, it's not going to reflect Christ. We thank you that you've called us to be peacemakers. We thank you, Lord, for how you've called us to respond to those who persecute us for righteousness' sake. May we hunger and thirst for that righteousness. And may we not shy away from the persecutions that come because of that righteousness. Help us to be bold. And I pray, Lord, as you speak to us, as you call us to move, as you call us to talk, Lord, that we would simply be your agents, your vessels. That we would be available for you to use at your bidding. I pray, Lord, we'd be able to do this together as a body of Christ here at Hope in Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.